Warning, binge mode contains adult content. That's right. If you've ever wondered what exactly you can do with a broken wand or a borrowed wand, well, you're in the right place. If that's not for you, please check out one of the other podcasts on the Ringer Podcast Network. For instance, how about Winging It, the latest podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network, which features Kent Bazemore, Vince Carter, talking about life on the road with a great intro theme song by the one and only angel-voiced Isaac Ice Lee. That's Winging It on the Ringer Podcast Network. One more warning. Binge Mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why we're stripping down to our skivvies to go diving oh, in the icy depths. It's cold. Let me just say Is that. Is that the excuse you're using? Excuse? It's legitimately <laughs> freezing cold. Okay. <laughs> Please proceed with extreme caution. Man, this water's cold and I haven't even dived in yet, if you know what I mean. And now binge mode. Behind both of the glass windows within blinked a living eye, dark and handsome as Tom Riddle's eyes had been before he turned them scarlet and slit-pupiled. Stab, said Harry, holding the locket steady on the rock. Ron raised the sword in his shaking hands. The point dangled over the frantically swiveling eyes, and Harry gripped the locket tightly, bracing himself, already imagining blood pouring from the empty windows. Then a voice hissed from out of the horcrux. I have seen your heart, and it is mine. Cold. Woo. And welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of The Ringer. Oh! What a fantastic, wonderful, great website. This website never shrinks. Never. No matter what the temperature. <laughs> Stays girthy. Always conjuring a full here at The Ringer. The cannon is wide. <laughs> Joining me today, now that he's finished explaining Ooh. how the little ball of light went Right inside of him. It's not a metaphor. Swinger Senior Creative. Your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mal, it floated toward me and then, uh, you know, it went inside me. Just like Benjamin Harry Potter went inside me. That's where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. So we're inside of it. It's like an Aurora Burros. <laughs> Whether or not you've ever impersonated Stan Shunpike in order to evade a gang of snatchers, we're clearly idiotic. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us five points, five stars, for Binge Mode. Feel free to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans, and which is an excellent place to share your review of the life and lies of Albus Dumbledore. Five stars for that. It's good. You give all of Rita's work a five star. <laughs> I mean, <Rating>. listen, <laughs> she's terrible. But this is great content. <laughs> Please also head to the ringer.com slash shop to check out our binge mode merch. Easy to strip off if you need to dive into a pool of frozen water to retrieve the sword of Godric Gryffindor. Last time on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored 
how testing faith Mm. shapes chapters 15 through 17 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters 18 and 19. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge mode as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep. On details from all seven books and 10 films. Yes, including the new Fantastic Beast films and the wider Potter canon. Oh. Taking the entire series into account from the moment Hermione brings us some tea. Love a tea. So ignore all that talk about how everyone from your mom to your would-be lover prefers your best friend. Because it's time to stab a horcrux. Mal, my dim-witted but devoted <laughs> sidekick. <laughs> Milton didn't like you insulting I me. He didn't like that at all. <laughs> he doesn't appreciate that kind of stuff at all. It's time to offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Hallow's chapters 18 to 19 by climbing aboard the Scarlet Steam Engine to plot the Hogwarts Express. Choo-choo! Choo-choo. Harry is in a despairing mood after the destruction of his wand, and his day is about to get even worse. From Bathilda's house, Hermione has taken not only the stench of rotting flesh, but also a copy of Rita Skeeter's new Dumbledore biography, from which the duo learns about Albus's boyhood friendship with the soon-to-be dark wizard, Gellert Grindelwald. Harry feels less kindly about his former headmaster and mentor than ever. He and Hermione then travel to the Forest of Dean, and one night, as Harry is keeping watch, he sees a silver doe. He follows the Patronus to a pool of icy water and dives inside to reach the prize, the Sword of Gryffindor! The Horcrux around his neck senses the danger and attempts to strangle him, but Ron Weasley thanks to Dumbledore's Deluminator, returns to save the day. Harry and Ron reunite, and Ron stabs the locket. One more Horcrux. Down. Great look for my guy, Ron Weasley. He did great. Look what he asked from us, Mal. Risk your life, binge mode, and again, and again. (laughs) And don't expect me to explain everything. Just record blindly. Trust that I know what I'm doing. Trust me even though I don't trust you. Never the whole podcast outline. Never! And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive to the cold waters of the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 18 and 19 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is doubt. Chapter 18, The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore. Harry moves to the tent's entrance to stay and watch the news of his wand's destruction clouding his body and mind. Quote, simply to be alive to watch the sunrise over the sparkling snowy hillside ought to have been the greatest treasure on earth, yet he could not appreciate it. Harry thinks back on all the wounds that he's suffered, all the blood that he's spilled, the scars from this very journey into Godric's Hollow, the many marks from the past, the injuries to body and soul alike. Quote, but never until this moment, had he felt himself to be fatally weakened, vulnerable, and naked, as though the best part of his magical power had been torn from him. He knows that if he voices this aloud, Hermione will tell him he's putting too much stock in his wand, that he's crediting the object over the wielder. She said it to him before. So has Mr. Weasley, when they heard Harry's initial account of how his wand had acted of its own accord in the air against Voldemort during the flight of the Seven Potters. But it's that very escape that Harry is harping on here. Not to question his own conviction, but to reinforce it. He knows, despite what Hermione and Arthur told him, that his wand did something he wasn't controlling. And he will be proven right. 
In the chapter King's Cross, Dumbledore will tell Harry that he and Voldemort, quote, have journeyed together into realms of magic hitherto unknown and untested, and share his belief that Harry's wand did, in fact, act in unprecedented fashion. When after imbibing some of Voldemort's wand's powers in the graveyard in Goblet of Fire, it, quote, recognized a man who was both kin and mortal enemy. But even if his suppositions proved false, even if Harry's belief in his wand's special powers were more placebo effect than reality, it's real to him. And that means it's real, period. We often apply Dumbledore's iconic line, also from King's Cross. Of course, it is happening inside your head, Harry, but why on earth should that mean that it is not real? to our feelings about the power of fantasy stories. But within this fantasy story, the logic of that line applies in myriad instances, in ways both big and small, including here. Think of how Sirio describes water dancing to Arya in A Game of Thrones. The steel must be part of your Mm. arm. Can you drop part of your arm? To Harry, his holly and phoenix feather wand was part of his arm, part of his very being, fully enmeshed and ingrained with his ability as a wizard. He saw what his wand did when it met Voldemort's in the Hangleton graveyard. He felt what it did in his hand in the skies when all hope seemed lost. Since Mr. Ollivander first spoke the words to him, he's always been keenly receptive to the idea that the wand chooses the wizard, prepared to think of wands as sentient and alive. It's the kind of open-mindedness and willingness to look beyond one's own gifts that will position him for victory at the end. But here, his certainty in his wand's prowess equates to doubt in his own abilities a doubt that Harry cannot afford to carry, and a doubt that belies his own prodigious skill. His wand's actions and his own are not mutually exclusive. Quite the opposite, in fact. They feed off each other, learning from each other, symbiotic entities in a world increasingly full of parasitic drain. But all Harry feels here is despair, for the loss of a shield, a sword, and a friend. Quote, he had lost the protection of the twin cores, and only now that it was gone did he realize how much he had been counting upon it. He tucks the broken fragments into the moke skin pouch that Hagrid gave him. From the book, the pouch was now too full of broken and useless objects to take anymore. Think about what Harry's shifting relationship to the pouch and its contents tell us about his state of mind. When he first received it from Hagrid and came to understand what it did, he filled it, quote, not with gold, but with those items he most prized, apparently worthless, though some of them were. The Marauder's Map, R.A.B.'s Note, Fake Locket, the Shard of Sirius's old mirror that Harry found in his trunk, He didn't think of those objects as useless, and of course they are not. He viewed them as worthy of keeping, worthy of remembering, worthy of protecting as treasures, albeit treasures few could properly understand. Now as he jams his wand in with them and feels the snitch that Dumbledore left him in his will, he's overcome not by a desire to hold on to these tethers to his past and possible lifeboats to his future, but by resentment for what now feels like an albatross around his neck, a mini satchel full of uncertainty and reminders of coming up short. He fights the urge to grab the snitch and hurl it into the abyss from the book. Impenetrable, unhelpful, useless, like everything else Dumbledore had left behind. Man. It's tough. (laughs) Harry's wand isn't the only thing that's broken. It's also his spirit, his belief not only in his path forward, but in every step he took to get where he is now. Even when Harry questioned Dumbledore's loyalty to Snape or resented the headmaster for not sharing more information about his connection to Voldemort, he put his faith in a fundamental way in the great wizard's guidance and wisdom. That guidance left with Dumbledore. But worse, the guidance that came before feels corrupted by the apprehension that currently rules the day. From the book, and his fury at Dumbledore broke over him like lava, scorching him inside, wiping out every other feeling. He sits and thinks about how much faith he put into the trip to Godric's Hollow, how he and Hermione had convinced themselves that Dumbledore had laid 
a path there for them to clarity. This isn't even totally true. This is why Hermione wanted to go. Yes, she believed the sword might be there. She believed Dumbledore would have expected Harry to connect the founder, the sword, and the village all bearing the same name. But remember, Harry found this a convenient excuse to convince Hermione to join him as he sought to satiate other desires, valid ones, undoubtedly, but other ones, nonetheless. He wanted to see his parents' graves. He wanted to see his former home to find Bethilda and seek the truth about Dumbledore's past. Answers about Dumbledore, yes, answers from Dumbledore, not as overtly. But now this ever so slightly revisionist history is just one more thing that fuels Harry's anger and his rage, that fits the narrative building in his mind of how he's been wronged, used from the book. There was no map, no plan. Dumbledore had left them to grope in the darkness, to wrestle with unknown and undreamed of terrors alone and unaided. Nothing was explained. Nothing was given freely. As Harry stews in his discontent, again lamenting the loss of the merry-faced thief's photo and Voldemort's inevitable path to finding the man now that he has that photo, Hermione approaches him, calling his name with a level of hesitation and trepidation that our friends rarely show one another. She's holding two cups of tea. And something else. A copy of The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore, which she swiped from Bethilda's living room. There's a note from Rita sticking out of the top, hinting at, not that we're surprised— Rita's nefarious methods for extracting information. Quote, you said everything, even if you don't remember it. (laughs) Charming woman. (laughs) As Harry looks at Dumbledore's visage, gazing out at him from the book's cover, that familiar face he looked into so many times, he feels not comfort or safety or instinctive reflexive security. He feels, quote, a surge of savage pleasure. That as soon as he cracks open Rita's tome, he'll know the truth at last. A sign of the times, if ever there was one. Harry is ready to rely not on Dumbledore, but on Rita fucking Skeeter. He pries open the stiff spine and searches immediately for the photos, quickly finding the one that he's seeking. The one that he first saw when he quickly opened the book in Umbridge's office and spotted a full-page image of two laughing teenage boys, arms around each other. He finds the image again. Quote, the young Dumbledore and his handsome companion roaring with laughter at some long-forgotten joke. And this time, he reads the caption. Albus Dumbledore, shortly after his mother's death. Laughing it up. (laughs) With his friend, Gellert Grindelwald. Dun, dun, dun! A time for laughs. Very tough. (laughs) Harry looks at Hermione, who's just as befuddled. Grindelwald? She says. After bouncing around nearby pages looking for the name, Harry finds the beginning of the chapter titled, quote, The Greater Good. And he and Hermione begin to read. This section of Rita's story begins as Dumbledore is leaving Hogwarts, quote, in a blaze of glory. But as he was set to depart on a post-grad jet-setting tour with, quote, Elphias Dogbreath Doge, the dim-witted but devoted sidekick he had picked up at school, news of his mother's mother Kendra's death arrived. Rita doesn't ignore Doge's account of what came next. She leans into it, calling her reader's attention to it in order to highlight the contrast between Doge's version of events and her own. In order to prove the more flattering account is false. Rita introduces, and it's Meek, a neighbor who cast aspersions as widely as Enid says Aberforth tossed goat dung, claiming the (laughs) brothers were not close. I never saw them together, she's quoted as saying. And hey, sometimes siblings aren't tight, but as Rita notes... This account matters because it opens the door for questions few had previously asked, at least as far as we and Harry know. Quote, what was Albus doing if not comforting his wild young brother? Remember, Percival had been in prison in Azkaban for attacking the Muggle Boys. In time, we'll learn the truth of that. 
which is that it was not motivated by anti-Muggle prejudice, but by a fierce paternal desire to protect and avenge his daughter, Ariana, whom the boys had attacked. But the truth doesn't change the fact that Percival was in prison and that with Kendra dead, Albus became the head of the house. Rita thinks she's found the answer to her own question within the book. The answer, it seems, is ensuring the continued imprisonment of his sister. As we've outlined before and will again today and will again in the future, Rita has this wrong. Ariane was not a squib, nor was she as a prisoner. She got some things right, but a lot of things, you know, it's like I think on balance a lot of it is right. It's 80% right, 20% wrong. I'd like a fact check on that math as well as on everything Rita wrote. Cram, get on it. I think she could use a fact check. I'm just saying it is, as a resource, it is actually quite valuable. Let's face it. It's valuable. Is it not? She would feed Zach Cram to a blast-ended scroot if he tried to get near any of her copy. That's all I'm saying. Yes or no, would you buy this book? I would buy it. (laughs) I would buy it. It's right. I'd buy the hardback and the Kindle edition, too. Yes, 100%. I'd buy the Kindle for the highlighting. I want to be able to quickly search it. Yes. (laughs) Yes, you'd read it, too. Enough. Again, Rita has this wrong. Everyone is not a script, nor was she a prisoner, based on everything we've learned about Obscurials and the Fantastic Beasts films. We, like many other Potter fans, have gleaned that Ariana developed an Obscurus after the Muggle Boys attack turned her magic inward on herself, causing her magic to become a dangerous force, parasitic force that she could not control. Rita either does not know this truth or does not present it, but the portrait she paints hangs together so well regardless because many of the brushstrokes do contain facts. They do. (laughs) (laughs) Only a select few, she reminds readers, knew the Ariana even existed. Doge was one of the few who did. Bethilda Bagshot was another. Rita explains that after striking up a correspondence with the prodigious young Albus, Bethilda became friendly with the entire family and was, quote, the only person in Godric's Hollow who was on speaking terms with Dumbledore's mother at the time of her death. We don't know if that is true, but if it was... We learn enough over the rest of the book to know that Kendra's extreme protective instincts and isolation stemmed from a desire to keep her child safe from those at St. Mungo's who would want to take her away, from injuring other people if Ariana's repressed magic burst forth. That means nothing to Rita, who besmirches Bethilda's mental state, then boasts of using, quote, a combination of tried and tested reporting techniques. To, quote, extract enough nuggets of hard fact to string together the whole scandalous story. That's all Rena needs. Just enough nuggets of hard fact. (sighs) Building an entire story. There's more than nuggets. On one source who isn't in her right mind. (laughs) That's not great. And is being coerced. I will admit to you that that is not ideal. And it's, in fact, quite bad. Like putting... Enid and other people in there just as set dressing. The whole story hinges on Bethilda, <laughs> just who like, was coerced. I'll just say this. If what you have is darkness, and then what you have after this is a pinprick of light, I will take the <laughs> pinprick of light gladly. Even if the pinprick was burned into existence by Veritaserum and Bethilda's tears? Let me say, it's worth it alone for the picture of freaking Dumbledore and Grindelwald, right? That alone is worth buying the book. I mean, the picture's useful. The picture is good. <laughs> Still, I'd like to ban Rita from J schools, the wizarding worldwide. And obviously, she's not using correct rigor in the creation of her pieces. That said, 
Wizarding World just needs more publications. It's bad. We need more of a free press. It's true. Come on. Rita admits to using Veritaserum to extract what she calls the truth from Bathilda about, quote, the best-kept secret of Albus Dumbledore's life, and one that, quote, calls into question everything that his admirers believed of Dumbledore, his supposed hatred of the dark arts, his opposition to the oppression of muggles, even his devotion to his own family. It's a different thing, reading this now, knowing what's to come. But try to remember how your heart pounded when you read this for the first time, how your stomach clenched, how you, like Harry, had felt the little seed of doubt that had been budding inside of you all of a sudden sprout fully into bloom like a weed in a time-lapse video. And Rita's next sentence does nothing to slow down that growth. Quote, the very same summer that Dumbledore went home to Godric's Hollow, now an orphan and head of the family, Bathilda Bagshot agreed to accept into her home her great-nephew, Gellert Grindelwald. Rita, always a responsible scribe when it comes to providing background context, reminds her readers that Grindelwald ranks just behind Voldemort, number two on the evil wizard power rankings. Not bad. (laughs) She notes that despite that, the details of his rise to power are not widely known in Britain, given that his reign of terror never reached those shores. We've always assumed that this was due to Dumbledore's presence in England and Grindelwald's fear of facing his former friend and known great wizard. And the most recent Fantastic Beast movie gives us more to go on than ever. The blood pact we can now deduce played a role in keeping Grindelwald away from the land that he knew he could not directly challenge the man with whom he had made it. Even more broadly, though, it's fascinating to consider this characterization from Rita about how little most magical people in Britain knew about Grindelwald, including, as we discussed last episode, that what Harry currently thinks of as a triangular eye, and what we'll soon learn as the sign of the Deathly Hallows, became his personal mark. Rita fills in some of those blanks now. Grindelwald, as we and Harry already learned from Crumb, studied at Durmstrang, from which he was expelled at 16. Where he went next is not widely known, but Rita's heavy Veritaserum hand has changed that. He went to live with his Aunt Bethilda in Godric's Hollow, where, quote, intensely shocking though it will be for many to hear it, he struck up a close friendship with none other than Albus Dumbledore. <laughs> this will eventually realize is the information on the second missing page of Lily's letter, And while it's not the reason Snape took the page, it's more proof that the relationship between Dumbledore and Grindelwald was known to precious few, and those who knew Dumbledore best struggled to believe it. Bathilda tells Rita that Gellert, quote, seemed a charming boy to me, but of course charm is not actually a contradiction. It is a part of his manipulative power, as it is for so many fascists who seek to recruit others to their cause. Bathilda introduced Gellert to Albus, and accordingly to old batty Bathilda, quote, The boys took to each other at once. They certainly did, Rita says, revealing that she's obtained from Bathilda a letter that Dumbledore sent to Grindelwald. Yes, Bathilda says, even after they'd spent all day in discussion, both such brilliant young boys, they got on like a cauldron on fire. I'd sometimes hear an owl tapping at Gellert's bedroom window, delivering a letter from Albus. We have learned from J.K. Rowling since Deathly Hallows' publication that more than their mutual brilliance informed this that Dumbledore was in love with Grindelwald, transfixed by him. And in The Crimes of Grindelwald's screenplay, the moment where Dumbledore looks at the pictures of himself and Grindelwald that ministry officials Traverse shows him, the stage direction reads thusly. 
Dumbledore is looking at the pictures. These memories are agony. He is full of remorse, but almost worse. Nostalgia for the only time in his life he felt fully understood. We are eager for the story to explore this more. Here, in Rita's book, in Albus's own words, we see what that feeling of understanding and acceptance led to. The letter opens with the 17-year-old Dumbledore saying, Gellert, your point about wizard dominance being for the muggle's own good, this, I think, is the crucial point. Now, immediately, this is highly alarming. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wizard dominance? Muggles spoken of as other apart? This is not the Dumbledore we know. Not at all. This is, in fact, the kind of thing that the Dumbledore we know fought so hard for so long to stop. The letter continues. Yes, we have been given power. And yes, that power gives us the right to rule. But it also gives us responsibilities over the ruled. We must stress this point. It will be the foundation stone upon which we build. Where we are opposed, as we surely will be, this must be the basis for all our counterarguments. We seize control for the greater good. Dun, dun, dun! Now, there is some redeeming language here. <laughs> Speaking of the responsibilities that would come with ruling. I mean, this is a Pulitzer in the wizarding world for Rita Skeeter. <laughs> but we quickly see how that is a justification, a rationalization, yes. a means to an end. For the greater good, as Hermione will say later in this chapter, was Grindelwald saying, because it allowed him to sanction his bigotry, to explain away his oppressive politics and violence by saying that it was all for the best, for the most in the end. The Dumbledore we know is not a violent or bigoted man, but we can see how these ideas took root in his young mind and how the appeal of power drew him and blinded him. Plenty of what we learn from Rita, particularly about Ariana, will prove false. But her portrayal of Dumbledore's thirst for power is something that we will hear from Aberforth, too, and that Dumbledore himself will own when he speaks to Harry and King's Cross, explaining the temptations of his youth and how they never really left him, leading him to avoid the post of Minister of Magic, not trusting himself in that role, leading him to touch the resurrection stone in Voldemort's Horcrux when he found it after all those years. Quote, I had proved as a very young man that power was my weakness and my temptation, he'll tell Harry at book's end. And we see that here when mm -hmm. he speaks of the right to rule and the foundation upon which they'd build and readying to seize control. When he speaks of the opposition rising in a way that only someone sure of his position's inevitable unpopularity can anticipate. The letter concludes, and from this it follows that where we meet resistance, we must use only the force that is necessary and no more. This was your mistake at Durmstrang. But I do not complain. <sighs> this is tough. It's very rough. <laughs> because if you had not been expelled, we would never have met Albus. Now, we see here the desire for good and for peace fighting even here in this darkest yes. moment to break through. This is not a man who wants to wage war. But his desire for greatness, subsumed the goodness for this brief moment in time until tragedy dropped the scales from Albus's eyes. As Aberforth will put it to Harry later in this book, my brother Albus wanted a lot of things, and people had a habit of getting hurt while he was carrying out his grand plans. Rita runs through the letter's ramifications as uncharitably, but not unreasonably as possible, noting, quote, what a blow. For those who have always portrayed Dumbledore as the Muggle-born's greatest champion, to learn that he once dreamed of uprooting the statute of secrecy to establish wizard rule over the Muggles. More on that very statute in today's restricted section. Rita calls Dumbledore's speeches and efforts on behalf of Muggle rights, quote, hollow, 
And it's easy to see how many would think so, either because they're determined to tear him down or because they feel so deeply let down. This would be a bombshell. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But this is, of course, one of the hallmarks of what makes Dumbledore such an exceptional character. He wasn't actually a god. He wasn't this textbook hero. Right. He was mortal and flawed like all the rest of us, and he learned and grew from his mistakes. The idea that even an icon like Dumbledore could exhibit the capacity for change is one of the story's most powerful lessons. Yes. Rita, of course, is ready to argue with anyone poised to play the he-changed-his-mind card. Dumbledore didn't part from Grindelwald because he saw the error of his ways, Rita says. He did so because Ariana's death forced the issue. Mathilda tells Rita that Gellert returned after the death, which, quote, came as an awful shock and that Gellert asked to leave immediately after it. We'll learn the horrifying truth from Aberforth and Albus later in the book. Gellert wasn't, quote, distressed over Ariana's death, but fleeing because of his role in it when a fight between Aberforth, Albus, and Grindelwald led to Ariana's death. From the book, that which I had always sensed in him, though I pretended not to, now sprang a terrible being, Dumbledore would tell Harry in King's Cross. And Ariana, after all my mother's care and caution, lay dead upon the floor. Grindelwald fled, and Dumbledore, as he'll tell Harry, quote, was left to bury my sister and learn to live with my guilt and my terrible grief, the price of my shame. And so the brothers found themselves alone. Just each other and their misery, with Aberforth blaming Albus and Albus blaming himself. Harry will come to realize that this horror is what Dumbledore relived when he drank the potion in the cave. The moment when Grindelwald used the Cruciatus curse on Aberforth. The moment when Ariana died. Either through being hit with a curse by an unknown caster or from losing control of her own obscurus. The moment when he paid a terrible life-altering price for his own desires. Aberforth broke Albus's nose at Ariana's funeral, Rita writes, a, quote, dreadful coffin-side brawl that only those in attendance ever knew of. She notes that neither Albus nor Gellert ever seems to have referred to their friendship later in life, which the second Beast film discounts as we see Dumbledore acknowledge it to Travers and the Ministry, as well as to Newt. Whether this is a change or further insight into this still largely opaque era of Dumbledore's life, we don't yet know. And that is not the only mystery. Rita next returns to the hint in her book tease when she dropped a bucket of chum in the book-buying waters with this line. All I'll say is, don't be so sure that there really was the spectacular duel of legend. After they've read my book, people may be forced to conclude that Grindelwald simply conjured a white handkerchief from the end of his wand and came quietly. The new information that we have about the blood pact between Dumbledore and Grindelwald lends Mm. new credence to that line and also allows us to parse in a new light Rita's next words in the biography about Dumbledore delaying his attack on his former friend despite, quote, years of turmoil, fatalities, and disappearances. She posits that lingering affection for Grindelwald delayed Dumbledore, and we've always subscribed to that theory. The blood pact, we now think, does not contradict that, but rather plays into it works in harmony with it, magic based on emotion playing into the emotion that still lingered. It also helps excuse to the extent that waiting that long to challenge an evil wizard reigning terror over Europe could ever be excusable. The dile- <laughs> When Dumbledore told Newt, I can't move against Grindelwald, there was a magical reason as well as an emotional one behind the words. Rita ends by speculating on Ariana's death, asking hideously if she was the victim of a dark right or... Quote, the first person to die for the greater good. Something has died for Harry upon reading this, and as he finishes, Hermione pulls the book away from him. Quote, looking a little alarmed by his expression, then closing the book rapidly. 
Passage continues as though hiding something indecent. She tries to speak to him, but he just shakes his head, a sign that he needs silence, time to process what he's just read. From the book, some inner certainty had crashed down inside him. It was exactly as he had felt after Ron left. He had trusted Dumbledore, believed him, the embodiment of goodness and wisdom. All was ashes. How much more could he lose? Hermione pushes, reminding him to consider the source of the information. But the letter Harry says, the letter that Dumbledore wrote, read it and sensationalize that. That's Albus Dumbledore's words, his thoughts. And Hermione can't deny this. From the book, for the greater good became Grindelwald's slogan, his justification for all the atrocities he committed later, she tells Harry. And from that, it looks like Dumbledore gave him the idea. It's an awful thing, she concedes. But she reminds Harry that it was a brief period in a long life and that they were both so very young. From the book, I thought you'd say that, Harry says, struggling to keep his voice stable. I thought you'd say they were young. They were the same age as we are now. And here we are risking our lives to fight the dark arts. And there he was in a huddle with his new best friend, plotting their rise to power over the muggles. Hermione isn't trying to defend the contents of the letter, as she tells Harry. For the greater good is magic is might with another face in another form. But she says his mother had just died and he was alone. But that just makes Harry angrier. Because Harry really was alone as a boy, really was deprived of a loving family. Dumbledore had his brother and sister. And apparently that wasn't enough. In time, Harry will come to feel unrivaled sympathy for Dumbledore in this respect. To champion his headmaster's grief and heart to the face of the very brother in question. But here he can't see beyond what feels like a base betrayal that undermines the very idea of who Harry thought Dumbledore was. And if he doesn't know who he was, how can he act on what Dumbledore taught him and wants him to do? How can he have faith in the mission or in himself? When Hermione says that no matter what else proves true, she doesn't believe that Arian was a scrib. Harry says, quote, the Dumbledore we thought we knew didn't want to conquer muggles by force. And he shouts it so loudly that birds rise into the sky. He's totally unmoored by what he's read. If it had occurred to him in a vacuum, it would unnerve him, certainly. But it didn't. It's the summit on an ever-growing mountain of doubt the peak of his expanding uncertainty. Hermione is emphatic. If any of it was true, then he changed. The man they knew did stop Grindelwald, did fight for muggle rights, did fight Voldemort, quote, died trying to bring him down. That's all real. That's not gone. It's not erased by what they just read. Harry, I'm sorry, she says, preternaturally perceptive as always, but I think the real reason you're so angry is that Dumbledore never told you any of this himself. And she's Right. That's a huge part of it. And he shouts, maybe he is, quote, hardly knowing whether he was trying to hold in his anger or protect himself from the weight of his own disillusionment. And his voice cracks as he shouts, as his rage and resentment wash over him. This is brutal. Look what he asked from me, Hermione. Risk your life, Harry, and again and again. And don't expect me to explain everything. Just trust me blindly. Trust that I know what I'm doing. Trust me, even though I don't trust you. Never the whole truth. Never. And as Harry and Hermione look at each other, and this boy who's assumed the mantle of an entire world, who's accepted the burden, who's chosen to be the chosen one, he feels that, quote, they were as insignificant as insects beneath that wide sky. Hermione knows that it's no use pushing about the points in Rita's book. No use arguing in that way. So in an effort to comfort Harry, she turns to one of the last remaining bits of certainty that she has. This is crushing. He loved you, Hermione whispered. I know he loved you. But even that certainty is gone for Harry now. I don't know who he loved, Hermione, but it was never me. Wow. 
this isn't love, the mess he's left me in. <laughs> that fucking kills me every time. This is just gutting. It's when one of the pillars on which this entire story is built is called into doubt, called into question. Dumbledore did love Harry, does love him still, even from beyond the grave. As he told him in The Lost Prophecy, he sometimes loved him too much, wanting to shield him from pain at the expense of brutal honesty. But we will see, when they're reunited at last in King's Cross, that love and belief really were strong enough to shoulder the weight of the fate of the wizarding world. But all Harry feels here is loss. He tells Hermione to go back into the warmth and that he'll finish the watch alone. (laughs) Fucking crushes me. And as she walks back into the tent, quote, she brushed the top of his head lightly with her hand. He closed his eyes at her touch and hated himself for wishing that what she said was true, that Dumbledore had really cared. Oh, so good. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of Binge Mode is brought to you by Dell. The Dell XPS 13 with an Intel Core i7 processor is the laptop for people who never say no to one more episode. With lifelike color, brilliant sound clarity, and smooth streaming, Mm. Dell Cinema Technology makes the XPS 13 the perfect laptop for people who watch things on their laptop. Like you, like me, like us. Call 800 by dell to learn more. Or visit dell.com slash dellcinema. And now back to binge mode. Chapter 19, The Silver Doe. Great one. After a restless sleep troubled by disturbing dreams about Nagini, Harry wakes. It's night, windy and cold, and Harry keeps thinking that he hears voices, goes to find Hermione at her watch. She tells him that she thinks she heard people moving around the camp. Harry checks the sneakoscope, sees no movement. From the book, I'm sure I imagined it, said Hermione, looking nervous. With so much danger all around them and everything that once felt solid and tactile, their friendship with Ron, Hogwarts, the mentorship and protection of Dumbledore, steadily stripped away from them, Hermione is now doubting her own senses. But as she so often is, she's right. Someone is out there looking for them. And as we'll learn shortly, it's the dude Ron Weasley. Harry and Hermione pack up and disapparate under the cloak for extra security. Hermione's taken them to the Forest of Dean, where she used to go camping with her family, and she reveals the name of their location as she, quote, opened the beaded bag and began tugging out the tent poles. Crucial, as we learn in The Prince's Tale, that this is how Phineas heard where they were, passing the information Mm -hmm. along to Snape and allowing him to bring the sword and his doe to Harry. Amazing. The weather is frigid here, too, and our friends spend much of the next couple of days in the warmth of the tent. Harry's thoughts on Voldemort, who, after the near miss at Godric's Hollow, quote, seemed somehow closer than before, more threatening. One night, Harry wanting to give Hermione a break takes the first watch. The darkness grows thick around the tent. From the book, he was on the point of taking out the Marauder's Map so as to watch Ginny's dot for a while before he remembered that it was the Christmas holiday and that she would be back at the burrow. The forest is alive with sounds, animals, surely. But something about it feels different to Harry, who at one point thinks he hears something like a cloak whispering over dead leaves, like he heard all those years ago in the Forbidden Forest. And something is different, as we'll soon see. Harry's ability to sense it, a magic deep testament to the connection between him and Snape. Harry dozes off several times. Waking, he finds the gloom so impenetrable that Harry thinks of being, quote, suspended in limbo between disapparation and apparition. And then something extraordinary happens. Harry sees a bright silver light threading its way toward him soundlessly through the trees. 
and he springs to his feet, raises Hermione's wand, readying for a fight. The light growing closer and incredibly bright, Harry scrunching his eyes against the glare. Quote, and then the source of the light stepped out from behind an oak. It was a silver-white doe, moon-bright and dazzling, picking her way over the ground, still silent, and leaving no hoof prints in the fine powdering of snow. She stepped toward him, her beautiful head with its wide, long-lashed eyes held high. It's a Patronus. Severus Snape's, we'll eventually learn in the prince's tale, taking the form of his love, Lily Potter's Patronus, her doe, to James's stag. Harry stares, drawn by her, quote, inexplicable familiarity. He felt that he had been waiting for her to come, but that he had forgotten, until this moment, that they had arranged to meet. This is one of those moments when the soul-deep force of magic shines through, as brightly as the doe itself. This is the essence of his mother, appearing to him. And though he doesn't know that yet, he can sense that this is not something to question, but something to trust. Something that's a part of him in a way that he doesn't understand, but can feel. It's incredible, too, to think about Snape, Harry's longtime secret protector, watching over him in this way, literally hiding behind Lily to lead her son forward. Watching Harry, so alone, so brave, so close to being defeated, working to fight the forces of evil, improving himself equal time and again. Using Harry's strengths, Patronus's, his love for his family, to guide him. This is a moment that, in a way, Lily, Harry, and Snape all share together. The doe, such a symbol of Snape's love, of his pledge, that it's all he needs in answer to Dumbledore's question about who Snape cares for after all these years. After all this time, Dumbledore will say when Snape casts his Patronus in the prince's tail and Lily's doe careens around the office. Always. In the woods, Harry doesn't call for Hermione. With his faith in Dumbledore and ruins, his best friend gone, and the Horcrux hunted a standstill, Harry grasps for the tool that served him best so often in crucial moments. His gut. Quote, he knew he would have staked his life on it, that she had come for him and him alone. It's so good. Harry and the Silver Doe lock eyes, and then she turns and heads off into the night. No, he says, and his voice cracks. Come back. Only a few days ago, Voldemort lured Harry into a trap and came very, very close. Very close. To capturing him. But that scheme. Nagini camouflaged in Bathilda Bagshot's enchanted, rotting corpse was vile magic, dark magic. He can tell that this is different, that this is right, this is good. And as he watches the doe retreat, he hesitates for but a moment. And then, quote, instinct, overwhelming instinct, tells him that this is not dark. Casting off caution and doubt, Harry follows. The doe leads him deeper and deeper into the dark woods, snow crunching under his feet, and the doe making no sound from the book, for she was nothing but light. I love that line. He believes when he reaches her, she'll speak to him as Kingsley and Arthur's Patronuses had in the past, telling him the truth of who she is and what he needs to know. But finally, when the doe stops and he runs towards it, quote, a question burning in him, before he can voice what he must be sensing, she raises her head to look at Harry and vanishes. Alone in the dark, Far from camp, fear and doubt come flooding back. From the book, her presence had meant safety. Harry lights Hermione's wand. He's imagining hidden assassins lurking just beyond the wand light, and someone is there, Snape and Ron. But no one emerges, and since no attack comes, Harry turns his mind to what has just occurred. Why had the doe led him here? Harry raises Hermione's wand high and looks around. Something glittering catches his eye, a small pond, its surface frozen. Harry peers down through the ice and sees it. 
quote, a great silver cross. His heart skipped into his mouth. It's the hilt of a sword. Dropping to his knees for a closer look, Harry can see the red glint of rubies. It's definitely Gryffindor's sword, and the doe had led him to it. How? He wonders if, quote, some unknown magic had drawn Hermione here. Then whether the doe was not a Patronus, but some kind of magical guardian of this body of water, like the Lady of the Lake from Arthurian legend. A legend, by the way, which J.K. is clearly referencing here. From Pottermore. There is a further allusion to Excalibur emerging from the lake when Harry must dive into a frozen forest pool to retrieve the sword in Deathly Hallows, though the location of the sword was really due to a spiteful impulse of Snape's to place it there. (laughs) For in other versions of the legend, Excalibur was given to Arthur by the Lady of the Lake and was returned to the lake when he died, end quote. Or had it been placed here after their arrival? And if so, where was the person who did it? And the person who must have cast the Patronus, are they somewhere close by watching? Harry again casts his eyes around the woods for any sign that he's not alone. Nothing. His answers will come in time. Now, he turns his full attention to the pool and the sword. And Harry feels exhilarated. The sword, finally the sword. Accio sword, Harry says. Harry, whose instincts have been forged in the presence of danger, often turns to the most direct magical remedies. Recall Dumbledore's words to him in the cave when Harry attempted Accio to retrieve the ultimately false Blackett Horcrux. That was a very good idea, Dumbledore says to him. Much the simplest way of finding out what we're facing. Now as then, nothing happens. But it was still a worthy test. And ultimately, Harry knew that probably nothing would. The sword, after all, isn't on the ground for him to easily retrieve. He knows this is going to be a test. And he thinks back to when the sword last presented itself to him in the Chamber of Secrets, with Slytherin's monster bearing down on him as his good friend Tom. (laughs) Gloated. (laughs) Harry was in desperate need then, in mortal peril, and he had pleaded for help. Help, he murmurs here. It's kind of a weak attempt, but it's a good try. (laughs) You gotta gotta try try. (laughs) Check the boxes, my guy. (laughs) Nothing happens. Quote, what was it, Harry asked himself, walking again, that Dumbledore had told him the last time he had retrieved the sword. Only a true Gryffindor could have pulled that out of the hat. Harry thinks of the Sorting Hat's first song and the qualities specific to Gryffindor House explored therein. Their daring nerve and chivalry set Gryffindors apart. Harry knows what he has to do. Has known, in fact, from the instant that he saw the sword's gleaming half beneath the ice. Time to get wet! (laughs) Harry, my boy, and not from all those bad habits that they talk about in True Detective. (laughs) So Harry strips, (laughs) reluctantly, unsure of how chivalry plays into this daring and nerve. Okay, those make sense, but chivalry? Still, he strips. An owl somewhere in the woods hoots, and Harry, quote, thought with a pang of Hedwig. Alone and vulnerable in the dark, Harry rests the mokeskin pouch, carrying his prized possessions on top of his clothes, and points Hermione's wand at the ice and casts. Defindo! The ice cracks. Harry takes another moment to consider the pool and where within it the sword lies. And Harry reckons he'll have to go fully underwater to retrieve it. With that, he jumps in. Spoiler. It's fucking cold, guys. (laughs) From the book, every pore of his body screamed in protest. The very air in his lungs seemed to freeze solid as he submerged to his shoulders in the frozen water. This is a quietly brilliant moment from J.K. Harry's facing so many things that we non-magical people will never face, but sometimes the most human fears are the most relatable. Harry finds the blade with his feet and marshals his will and his strength and whatever warmth is left in his body, and he plunges under the surface. From the book, the cold was agony. It attacked him like fire. 
His brain itself seemed to have frozen. His fingers find the shaft of the sword and close around it, and he pulls upward, and suddenly something is closed around his neck, holding him fast to the bottom of the pool. It's the Horcrux, sensing the proximity of its doom, defending itself, the locket's chain tightening around his windpipe. Harry pushes his feet against the bottom of the pool to try and shoot up above the surface. He tries to wedge his numb fingers between his windpipe and the chain, but nothing works. Everything is going dark. He's drowning. And from the book, and the arms that closed around his chest were surely deaths. And then, next thing Harry knows, he's face down in the snow, coughing up frozen pond water, his testicles still buried deep within his abdomen, seeking the, warmth. Where are they? Somewhere up <laughs> by the duodenum. <laughs> Too weak to even lift his head to see how it is that he's still alive, to see who grabbed him, who's coughing now, walking in a way that doesn't sound like Hermione. Are you mental? A voice asks. Is that Ron Weasley's music? (laughs) (laughs) They're towering row, and Ron's parting words shredded Harry's already faltering confidence. Remember what Harry felt at the time. Something had broken between them. And because of that, something had broken in Harry. In the absence of Ron's self-effacing levity and typical support, tension, misery, and doubt took Harry in their grip. The close call with Voldemort and Godric's Hollow, which they've barely had time to process, made Harry question how he could proceed without his wand. The reading of Dumbledore's biography, how he could possibly proceed without trust in the headmaster. And on top of that, Harry was pretty sure he was about to die like (laughs) literally 30 seconds ago. Now just hearing Ron's voice, Harry finds the strength to look up. And there he is, Ronald Weasley, in all his ginger glory. Red hair soaking wet, clothes still on and sopping. Smart guy. Holding the sword of Gryffindor in one hand and Slytherin's locket, chain broken in the other. Ron asked Harry why the hell he didn't take the locket off before he dove. Quote, Harry could not answer. The silver dough was nothing, nothing compared with Ron's reappearance. He could not believe it. Harry very sweetly steals these childlike looks at Ron as he puts on layer after layer of clothing, afraid every time that he disappears for an instant under a new sweater, that Ron will have vanished again, vanished like the dough. Harry asks if Ron cast the dough, and amusingly, Ron says that he thought Harry was the one who did that, and Harry's like, my guy, you know my Patronus is a stag. What are you talking about? Gotta check for antlers. Then Harry gets to the real question. How come you're here? Ron says, well, I've, you know... I've come back. If, he cleared his throat, you know, you still want me. There was a pause in which the subject of Ron's departure seemed to rise like a wall between them. Yet he was here. He had returned. He had just saved Harry's life. The way Ron took his leave is simply too fraught a subject to delve into right now. And indeed, there are more pressing matters to consider. Harry just nearly died, and it is freezing out here, and they're both soaked. Oh, and yeah, they just both found the sword of Gryffindor. Hello! What? How? From the book. Oh, yeah, I got it out, he said, rather unnecessarily holding up the sword for Harry's inspection. That's why you jumped in, right? It's so great to have Ron back. Yes, that's why you fucking jumped in. What are you talking about? I saw a pebble that interested me, Ron. I missed Ron so I mean, much. It was, it's great Honestly, to have him back. So good to have him back. Harry asks Ron how he managed to find them. Long story. 
Rod says, <laughs> as if we're trying to catch a train or it's something. Good news, buddy. It's a long book. <laughs> it's a long podcast. Let's hear it. Luckily, we will hear that later this chapter. He says here that he's been blundering around the woods for hours looking for Harry and Hermione. He was just settling down to rest out the night when he saw the doe and Harry pass. He didn't see anyone, he says. At least he thinks he didn't from the book. I did think I saw something move over there. Snape, we can deduce based on what we'll later learn, possibly readying to save Harry from the pool before he saw Ron do that. It's a nice thought. Harry goes to the spot where Ron indicated and finds two oaks, their trunks close together, forming a Y. An ideal place, Harry thinks, to observe events and remain unseen. No footprints, however. Harry and Ron look back to the sword, and Ron asks how it got into the pool. From the book, whoever cast the Patronus must have put it there, Harry says. Indeed, Snape, as we'll learn, following Dumbledore's orders to lead Harry to the sword, which he needed to claim through valor. As for whether it's the genuine article or a fugazi, well, great. Good news. There's a way to find out. Why don't we try to destroy the Horcrux with it? The locket, sensing the danger posed by the sword, had just tried to drown Harry, which bodes well for the sword's legitimacy. He can see it twitching now from the book, knows that the thing inside of it was agitated again. Harry resolves to eliminate the Horcrux now, without delay. He gestures toward a flat rock. Come here, he tells Ron, who offers Harry the sword. But Harry knows that it has to be, not should be, has to be Ron who does the deed. From the book, I think it's supposed to be you. He was not being kind or generous. As certainly as he had known that the doe was benign, he knew that Ron had to be the one to wield the sword. Dumbledore had at least taught Harry something about certain kinds of magic, of the incalculable power of certain acts. Think of Lily's blood sacrifice and Harry saving Peter Pettigrew's life. Think of Voldemort taking in Harry's blood and Harry sacrificing himself for his friends. The locket, as it will again in a moment, tried to throw a wedge between Ron and his friends, and it almost worked. Now Ron, against all odds, has returned just in the nick of time to save Harry's life from the locket, and it has to be Ron. This is his test. His chance. It has to be him. Harry's plan is to hold the locket fast against the rock and open it for Ron to stab. He tells Ron not to wait, reminding him that the bit of riddle inside the diary tried to kill Harry. And that was his good, close, personal friend. (laughs) Tom, is that you? Doesn't even like Ron. I know. I just want to open the locket to see my friend Tom's eyes again. <laughs> Let me look into his eyes for a moment. For one moment. And then stab. And then stab the eyes. Ron, looking terrified, asks Harry how he's going to open it. And when Ron asks him this, Harry says, parcel tongue. Quote, the answer came so readily to his lips that he thought that he had always known it deep down. Interesting. The horcrux within guiding him here. Ron balks, begging Harry not to open it. The doubts the locket seated in Ron's tender heart did their work too well. And Ron, showing real wisdom here beneath his fear, maybe from his fear, has the self-awareness to realize it. Quote, because that thing's bad for me, he says to Harry. I can't handle it. I'm not making excuses, Harry, for what I was like, but it affects me worse than it affected you and Hermione. It made me think stuff. Stuff I was thinking anyway, but it made everything worse. The locket is a terrible weapon. As Ron is expressing here, and as we'll see more fully momentarily, it takes one's deepest insecurities and doubts and weaponizes them, turning them into shame and fear that fester and destroy. Ron is particularly susceptible to the locket's power because of the nature of his vulnerabilities. Think back to Harry's first exposure to the Mirror of Erised and Sorcerer's Stone and to how Dumbledore used what Harry and Ron saw, respectively, to explain how the mirror works. Quote, You who have never known your family, 
see them standing around you, Dumbledore said then. Ronald Weasley, who has always been overshadowed by his brothers, sees himself standing alone, the best of all of them. Ron's sense of inferiority has always eaten away at his confidence, causing him to doubt himself and his worth and his value to others. Again, the magic of J.K. Rowling's story is in moments like this, when we learn that in a world full of evil wizards and prophecies and soul-shredding swords, sometimes the greatest foe is our own doubt and the greatest victory is finding a way to overcome it. You can do it, Harry tells Ron, forgetting his anger, wanting only to help his friend believe in himself, wanting only to rid the world of this casing for Voldemort's ills. You can. You've got the sword. I know it's supposed to be you who uses it. Please just get rid of it, Ron. And this steadies Ron, hearing his best friend speak his name, speak belief. And Harry says, they go on three. And looking at the locket, imagining that the S is a snake, he, or perhaps the horcrux inside of him, thinks, quote, it would have been easy to pity it except that the cutter on Harry's neck still burned. He counts. One, two, three. And then in parcel tongue, he hisses, open. The locket obeys. Behind the two panes within are two dark eyes, handsome, just like Tom Riddle's had been. Stab! Harry yells. But before Ron can, the horcrux speaks, and every word is a dagger of doubt aimed right at Ron's deepest insecurities. I have seen your heart, and it is mine. <laughs> Harry, recognizing the danger, begs Ron not to listen, begs him to act. But the Horcrux continues preying on Ron's worst fears about himself and his life. I have seen your dreams, Ronald Weasley. I have seen your fears. All you desire is possible, but all that you dread is also possible. The foulest terrors in the wizarding world, like Dementors and Boggarts, prey on fear and terror robbing their victims of happiness and confidence. The Horcrux is a weaponized version of something that's already a weapon, cutting with a surgeon's precision into the deepest recesses of Ron's inhibitions. Least loved always by the mother who craved a daughter, least loved now by the girl who prefers your friend. Yikes. Second best always eternally overshadowed. He's got a big dick. <laughs> you can't tell now because of the cold water, but he can lay that pipe. <laughs> Hermione's been screaming through the woods for weeks. <laughs> Harry, Harry, oh, oh. <laughs> Those are literally Ron's biggest fears in the world. Was he ever good enough for his family? How could he ever stand out when so many in his own home had achieved so much? And how could Hermione love him when Harry was right there, the chosen one? When Ron said a moment ago that the locket made him think stuff he was already thinking, this is what he meant. Never forget what he said when he left that night. I get it. You choose him. All of his terror about never being enough, about never getting the wind bubbling to the fore. Harry screams at Ron. Stab it. Stab it now. Ron raises the sword, but the Horcrux isn't out of weapons. It produces, quote, like two grotesque bubbles, the heads of Harry and Hermione, weirdly distorted. And this illusion stuns Ron, who backs away from the locket. The twisted visions of Harry and Hermione rise fully and attack Ron's most delicate sensitivities, his feelings of inadequacy as a man, as a wizard, as a Weasley, as a romantic partner. Why return? We were better without you, happier without you, glad of your absence. We laughed at your stupidity, your cowardice, your presumption, says Horcrux Harry. This is very tough, this next part. Who could look at you, Horcrux Hermione says. 
Who would ever look at you beside Harry Potter? What have you ever done compared with the chosen one? What are you compared with the boy who lived? And she's described as being simultaneously, quote, more beautiful and yet more terrible than the real Hermione. They are reflected in Ron's wide, staring eyes as they continue to taunt him. Your mother confessed, Horcrux Harry says, that she would have preferred me as a son, would be glad to exchange. Horcrux Hermione cuts in. Who wouldn't prefer him? What woman would take you? You're nothing, nothing, nothing to him. And as she says this, she wraps herself around Riddle Harry and begins to kiss him. Quote, on the ground in front of them, Ron's face filled with anguish. This is so thrilling, but so painful to read. What an absolutely agonizing moment for Ron. Watching all of his dread play out before him like a movie, mocking him, torturing him by surrounding him in a web of his own woe. All the while, Harry is screaming for Ron to stab the Horcrux. And finally, just as Harry thinks that he sees a trace of scarlet in Ron's eye, Ron screws up his courage and plunges the sword into the locket. And the Horcrux emits a long, quote, drawn-out scream and dies. Quote, the monstrous versions of himself and Hermione were gone. There was only Ron, alone, at last. With the deed done, the locket smoking and the sword proven real, Harry, while studiously pretending not to see Ron's tears, needs his friends to know that whatever Ron thinks, whatever the locket told him, there's nothing between he and Hermione. From the book, after you left, he said in a low voice, grateful for the fact that Ron's face was hidden. She cried for a week, probably longer, only she didn't want me to see. Harry has to stop speaking as he himself is overcome from the book. It was only now that Ron was here again that Harry fully realized how much his absence had cost them. He brings himself to continue, saying that she's like a sister to him from the book. I thought you knew. This is very sweet. Yeah. It's one thing to have fears and doubts and yearnings. Everyone does. But we, for the most part, keep those things secret. The locket didn't just amplify Ron's self-doubts and anxieties in its final desperate bid to stave off the death. It was created to elude It exposed them in ruthless detail. But while there is awkwardness now between Ron and Harry in the wake of these revelations, there's also a palpable relief. It's a relief for Ron to cast off the baggage he's been carrying for as long as he's known Harry and Hermione. A relief for Harry, too. It's out in the open now. There's nothing left to hide. I'm sorry I left, Ron says in a voice thick with emotion. Harry points out that saving his life and killing off the Horcrux more than balances the scales. (laughs) from the book. That makes me sound a lot cooler than I was, Ron replies. And this is exactly this is what Harry, whose CV is indeed impressive on paper, oh, yeah. has been trying to explain to his friends for a long time and anyone else who would listen. Since long before the Chosen One moniker first started getting thrown around, he says, stuff like that always sounds cooler than it really was, which quietly is an incredible fucking flex. Amazing. Am- listen, stuff like dunking on Voldemort five times, It's not as cool as it seems. (laughs) (laughs) I've been telling you and Zachariah Smith for years. Listen, pulling uh, Gryffindor's sword out of the hat and killing the Basilisks, it's really not that great. It was not that cool, guys. With that, our two best friends hug it out. Beautiful moment. I love the way Harry grips his jacket, doesn't want to let go. Harry's worried about finding the campsite again, but, quote, With Ron by his side, the journey back seemed to take a surprisingly short time. Hermione is so deeply asleep that Harry calls her name several times before she wakes. What's wrong? Harry, are you all right? It's okay, he says. Everything's fine. 
He says in response to Hermione, and this is this is pretty priceless. He just thinks yeah. everything's going to be fine. It's okay. Everything's fine. More than fine. I'm great. <laughs> There's someone here. The greeting that she gives her once lost, now found love is both completely unexpected and pure, unfiltered Hermione Jean Granger. Yes. She punches Ron <laughs> numerous times on, quote, every inch of him that she could reach, all the while castigating him for leaving and now slinking back. Now, before this happened, because this plays out very quickly, upon Hermione first laying eyes on Ron, Harry, quote, backed into a shadowy corner, clipped off Ron's rucksack, and attempted to blend in with the canvas. He, just like readers, is certain yeah. that Ron and Hermione are going to throw themselves into each other's arms, kiss passionately finally, all the pain forgotten, nothing to explore but each other's bodies in the night. <laughs> Hermione is described as moving, quote, like a sleepwalker toward Ron, her eyes upon his pale face. She stopped right in front of him, her lips slightly parted. Yeah. Her eyes wide. You're like, these two are about to fuck. And when Ron smiles, Wham. It is an iconic subversion from J.K.R. Hermione calls Ron an ass. Arse. And when she calls for her wand, Harry, perhaps genuinely concerned that things could get out of hand here, casts Protego, just as Hermione had cast it between him and Ron before Ron departed. Now separated from Ron by an invisible barrier, Hermione continues to give vent to the frustration and doubts of the previous weeks. Don't you tell me what to do, Harry Potter! Don't you dare! (laughs) (laughs) Give it back now. And you, and the word you is described as a malediction, and Ron retreats as Hermione casts it at him. I came running after you, she says. I called you. I begged you to come back. Ron is not the only person who wonders whether he's wanted, whether he's loved. Hermione has fallen in love, too, and in that moment, When he left, she cried out for him in the night, and his decision to walk away from her fell like a sentence on their future, leaving her to doubt everything that she had come to believe in and want. You come back after weeks, weeks, she says here, and you think it's all going to be all right if you just say, sorry? Well, what else can I say? Ron (laughs) shouted, and Harry was glad that Ron was fighting back. Amazing Harry moment there to be like, yeah, Ron, fight back. Ron says he knew they weren't dead because he's been tracking the news, but he lost any momentum he's gained from this when he says, you don't know what it's been like. This is amazing. My guy. Amazing. Your friends have been living in the fucking woods, (laughs) eating bark and fungus. What are you talking about? You've been hanging at Shell Cottage with Bill and Fleur. Listening to them fuck all night and eating home cooked <laughs> meals. What are you talking? <laughs> Hermione responds, "What it's been like for you?" Her voice was now so shrill only bats would be able to hear it. Ron pounces on her speechlessness, insisting that he wanted to come back right away. Hey, the moment he left, in fact, I've been trying to come back. And he says, "The moment he disappeared, he." found himself in the midst of a crew of snatchers. And Harry's like, what are snatchers? With Voldemort triumphant, the ministry has placed a bounty on blood traders, Muggleborns. Snatchers are teams of wizards and witches who hunt non-pure bloods and the pure bloods who shield them in order to collect the reward. Ron managed to elude them first by claiming to be Sans Shunpike, then by exploiting the confusion this story created amongst the snatchers who are apparently 
paralyzingly <laughs> stupid people <laughs> to fight one, claim his wand, disarm another who is holding Ron's wand, and disapparate out of danger, splinching off two of his fingernails in the process. Impressive stuff from Wan Wan. Am I right, Hermione? Well, funny thing about being abandoned by the love of your life in the rainy woods and then tussling with Voldemort and his pet snake can make one just a wee bit jaded about the struggles of another. Gosh, what a gripping story, (laughs) Hermione said in a lofty voice she adopted when wishing to wound. You must have been simply terrified. Meanwhile, we went to Godric's Hollow, and let's think what happened there, Harry. Oh, yes. You know whose snake turned up and nearly killed both of us, and then you know who himself arrived and missed us by about a second. Hermione is clearly steamed. She is irate. (laughs) This next line is an all-timer. Unbelievably savage. Just brutal shit from Hermione Granger. Imagine losing fingernails, Harry! (laughs) That really puts our suffering into perspective, doesn't it? Even Harry's interjection that Ron just saved his life doesn't dissuade Hermione at all off her path of righteous destruction. One thing I would like to know, though, she said, fixing her eyes on a spot of foot over Ron's head. How exactly did you find us tonight? This is unbelievable. (laughs) That's important. Once we know, we'll be able to make sure we're not visited by anyone else. We don't want to see this is brutal. Savage! Ron pulls Dumbledore's deluminator from his pocket and says, This? Even the most seemingly straightforward of Albus's gifts contain secrets. But also, even in the most doubt-ridden times, Albus finds a way to restore their faith in his purpose and his plan. Hermione is so stunned by Ron's reveal that she forgets to be angry for just a moment. And Ron tells them how the object of Dumbledore's own invention does more than turn off the lights. Early on Christmas morning, he says, he heard Hermione's voice coming out of the device, saying his name, and then something about a wand. This, Hermione and Harry realize, was after their escape from Bathilda's shit-smelling house. It's so like shit. I mean, that's just on, yeah. the, it's on the page. That is canon. <laughs> <laughs> the chamber pot was full. When Harry asked Hermione to repair his broken wand, she reminded him of how Ron's spell-a-taped wand from their second year at school never performed correctly and ultimately needed to be replaced. Happens to a lot of guys. (laughs) 20% of men. There's nothing to be ashamed of. It was the first time that they had spoken of Ron by name since he left. And the magic of speaking Ron's name, of voicing in some small way, their relationship with him back into existence activated the power that Dumbledore had put in place because, as Ron says, he'd wanted to return from the moment that he left. But only in this moment, when Hermione said his name, did something change. Ron tells them how, upon taking out the deluminator to inspect the source of the sound and clicking it, turned off all the light in his room and produced a small ball of light outside. Quote, it was a ball of light, kind of pulsing and bluish, like my dick. <laughs> like that light you get around in Porky, you know? They do know. Ron knew that this was his chance, so he packed his bag and went outside where the ball was waiting for him and led him behind a shed. And then it, well, it went inside me, he says. And Harry's like, what? Mm. <laughs> Say, excuse me, what? 
It floated into his chest, Ron says, toward his heart, and he felt it burn hot. And he knew with the same kind of certainty that guided Harry toward the dough tonight that it would lead him. And so he disapparated, letting it guide him, and it led him to his friends, though he could not see them. Such was the strength of their protection on the hillside. When Harry, remember, thought that he heard someone around their camp. So Ron repeated the process and managed to find them, or at least find the dough, which led him to Harry. When they bring up the dough and Hermione's like, what are you talking about? They explain the events of the night, and she immediately realizes that this had to be a Patronus. And in their retelling, in a really charming moment of unity, showing that they have forgiven each other, they leave out the details of what the locket forced Ron to see and hear. And as Hermione examines the destroyed locket, Harry thinks it's safe to remove the shield charm at last. But wait, there's more! For everyone out there, physically, who has at times doubted the importance of Ronald Weasley, we offer yet another reminder that the dude comes through in big ways. Yes! Often unexpectedly. Not only has he returned to save Harry's life and destroy the locket and discover, kind of, kind of, a previously unknown application for the Deluminator and outwitted the Snatchers. He also managed to take two wands off of them, thus solving the most pressing of Harry's panoply of problems. Ron says, I figured it's always handy to have a backup. Uh-huh. You were right, said Harry, holding out his hand. Mine's broken. Hermione by now has cooled off. In fact, she's practically frigid. Sub-zero towards Ron. <laughs> She places the ruined locket in her beaded bag and goes to bed, giving Harry and Ron, best friends reunited, another opportunity to show their affection for each other in the way that dudes so often do. By busting each other's balls, I mean wands. <laughs> From the book. About the best you could hope for, I think, murmured Harry. Yeah, said Ron. Could have been worse. Remember those birds she set on me? I still haven't ruled it out, <laughs> came Hermione's muffled voice from beneath her blankets. But Harry saw Ron smiling slightly as he pulled his maroon pajamas out of his rucksack. What a fabulous chapter. That's a good one. Oh. Jason. Yes. You shared a damn sight more of what you were really thinking with Gellert Grindelwald than you ever shared with me. But I'd like you to change that now. Please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section. So teach us what we need to know about the International Statute of Secrecy. According to Albus Dumbledore's notes on the wizard and the hopping pod in the tales of Beetle the Bard, discrimination against witches and wizards accelerated all over Europe starting in the early 15th century. A variety of manifestations of this persecution made the ensuing couple centuries a dangerous time for wizards. Muggles would use force to make witches and wizards help them with magic, for instance, or else try to make witches and wizards teach them how to use a wand, even if that isn't how magic works. Their tactics could also grow darker. Witch hunts and burnings were a growing concern because even if the most capable magical folk could successfully escape from the stake, there were some tragedies that increased in frequency. Sir Nick was killed in 1492 after being stripped of his wand, for instance, and Dumbledore writes that, quote, wizarding families were particularly prone to losing younger members whose inability to control their own magic made them noticeable and vulnerable to muggle witch hunters. After a long while of mistreatment, wizards began pulling away from muggle society where there had been more intermingling before, which in turn created even more suspicion and enmity between the two groups. By the 17th century, Dumbledore notes, witches or wizards who associated with muggles became outcasts among fellow magical folk and thought to possess inferior magic to their muggle-hating peers. According to the Wombat Quiz, uh-huh. Rowling's old site, 
In Britain, Wizardkind even sent a designation to beg William and Mary, the Mughal king and queen, for protection under Mughal law, but they didn't succeed in their effort. So out of this failure in the broad atmosphere of suffering and strife came the International Statute of Secrecy, which was initially drafted in 1689 and ultimately instituted in 1692 to help keep wizarding kind safe. The International Confederation of Wizards, led by the Supreme Mugwump, oversaw this law's creation and assumed broad administrative oversight after its establishment. But on a day-to-day basis, the ICW was more of a deistic parent. That's because under the rules of the statute, individual countries' legislative bodies were responsible for ensuring that their respective citizens maintained the code of secrecy. So Britain soon created the Ministry of Magic to supervise British witches. Makusa came into being to oversee American wizards and so on and so forth all across the globe. Nowadays, the ICW becomes involved only in the most extreme circumstances. A newspaper article that flashed on screen during the first Beast movie showed an ICW emergency meeting to discuss the magical disturbances that risked wizarding exposure. And in 1981, the ICW called on the British Minister of Magic to explain the widespread breaches to the statute of secrecy that had occurred in her country after Voldemort's defeat in Godric's Hollow. As we mentioned on a previous research section, the legend Millicent Bagnold Love her. told the assembled legislators, I assert our inalienable right to party. Damn right. But magical secrecy doesn't just mean avoiding fireworks. This kind of federalist system expanded over time to encompass a wide variety of disciplines. Each country must enforce the secrecy of its magical sports contests, for instance, which is how the Department of Magical Games and Sports was created. Shouts to our guy Bagman. And in 1750, <laughs> the ICW instituted Clause 73, which made the individual country's governing body, quote, responsible for the concealment, care, and control of all magical beast beings and spirits dwelling within its territory's borders. Even wizarding attire is governed by the statute so as to keep odd dress to a minimum around muggles to avoid arousing suspicion. On Pottermore, Rowling lays out this part of the statute as follows, quote, When mingling with muggles, wizards and witches will adopt an entirely muggle standard of dress, which will conform as closely as possible to the fashion of the day. Clothing must be appropriate to the climate, the geographical region, and the occasion. Nothing self-altering or adjusting is to be worn in front of muggles. Of course, this part of the law angers wizards to this day. Just remember our friend Archie at the Quidditch World Cup in Goblet, strenuously arguing for a healthy breeze around these nuts. Fight for your rights, Archie. Clothing disagreements have ranked among the most common breaches of the statute of secrecy since its establishment because wizards lose touch with the newest muggle fashion trends as they grow older. Some don't want to adhere anyway, which leads to an all-time sentence from (laughs) our pal JKR. Quote, a fringe movement calling itself fresh air refreshes totally, or fart, (laughs) insists that muggle trousers, quote, stem the magical flow at its source. and insist on wearing robes in public in spite of repeated warnings and fines. Is that where it comes from? Stem the magical flow at source? So like Dr. Strangelovian. So that means the nuts that you were just referencing. (laughs) Magic comes from Bofa. (laughs) Fart isn't the only group upset with the statute's provisions, though. In many cases, the anger grows darker. More violent and stenchy. Grindelwald sought to overthrow the thing entirely because he thought it led to even more oppression than it was designed to prevent. And he wasn't the only witch or wizard throughout the centuries to feel this way. In the next few Beast movies, presumably, we learn more about how the two sides confronted this particularly philosophical 
disagreement. Jason, your mother confessed that she would have preferred the seven. I knew that. I could have told you that was going to happen. <laughs> so let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Hallows, chapters 18 and 19, because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. You go first. Number one, Harry's dream is yet another Harry is a Horcrux clue. From the book, Harry's dreams were confused and disturbing. Nagini wove in and out of them, first through a gigantic cracked ring, then through a wreath of Christmas roses. We know at this point that Nagini and the ring are Horcruxes. Associating them with the wreath that Harry left on his parents' graves asks us to associate two Horcruxes with the night that Lily and James died. Thus, the night that Harry himself became a host for a sliver of Voldemort's soul. Number two. Let's return for a moment to the way that Harry thinks about the dough and to what that tells us about the type of magic on display here. When Harry ponders whether to follow the dough, as we stated above, he thinks, quote, instinct, overwhelming instinct, told him that this was not dark magic. He set off in pursuit. And indeed, a Patronus is almost the antithesis of dark magic. And in fact, because of that, most Death Eaters cannot produce one because they never have a need to do so. Snape, of course, is rather unique for a Death Eater. Number three. The Forest of Dean in western Gloucestershire, England, in Mm. addition to being a favorite Granger family camping location, is also a favorite of J.K.'s. Her family moved close to the forest after her father got a job working for Rolls-Royce. J.K. said in the January 17th, 1999 issue of Scotland on Sunday, quote, living in this really rural area where there was very little to do, beautiful wild scenery and so on, I think it really stimulated my imagination, definitely. Just because we couldn't go to the cinema, we couldn't do what a lot of urban kids do, so we were out making up ridiculous things in the fields. Though the setting was an influence on our work, only one character in the books is directly drawn from the Forest of Dean, Hagrid, the enormous keeper of the keys whose dropped word endings are a Chepstow specialty. In shape, he's modeled on the Welsh chapter of Hell's Angels who'd swoop down on the town and hog the bar. Quote, huge mountains of leather and Amazing. Number four. One line from the Dumbledore biography that we didn't talk about above is the claim that, quote, barely two months into their great new friendship, Dumbledore and Grindelwald parted, never to see each other again until they met for their legendary duel. Now, we really want to know Rita's sourcing for this in particular because either she is just flat out wrong about this part in a chapter where she is right about a lot of other stuff, albeit not everything, or she's right which would mean that we will not see Jude Law's Dumbledore interact with Grindelwald on screen until the fifth Fantastic Beast movie, which would be incredibly bizarre. What would be in the third and fourth movies? <laughs> I, I mean, give me more time with Pickett, yes, but can that possibly be true? We have to assume not. Maybe, though. Number five. The magic is not the same in intent or execution, and we don't know if it's the same in terms of the port key-esque way in which it works, but it's notable that the Deluminator picking up the mention of Ron's name foreshadows Voldemort using his own name as a jinx, priming us to think of names as ways to track and find others. Number six, among Dumbledore's achievements listed in his biography, quote, gold medal winner for groundbreaking contribution to the International Alchemical Conference in Cairo. Could this possibly be where Dumbledore met his partner, 
the homie Nicola Flamel, given Flamel's role in The Crimes of Grindelwald and the likely role that he'll play moving forward in the films following his Jessica Williams Skype call and what seems to be his Order of the Phoenix precursor phone book, it stands to reason that we will get the Dumbledore Flamel origin story at some point in these films. Could this hint at what that is? Who knows? Maybe. And number seven, the dark and seductive effect the locket had on our friends, Ron in particular calls to mind the corrupting effect of the Ring of Power from perhaps mm-hmm. the first great fantasy story, The Lord of the Rings, had on its protagonist, Frodo, and anyone else who touched it. Both amplify wearer's doubts and insecurities and use emotions like jealousy and anger as weapons to defend itself. Both are destroyed, in part, by a character's unexpected return. Hmm. Seems like the makings of a potential podcast one day. Da, da, da! <laughs> For Frodo. Mal, Hmm. I have seen your dreams. God, I hope not. (laughs) They showed me today's champion every episode. We're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most. And today we're dishing out some last minute points and awarding the House Cup too. Ronald Billy is Weasley the Weas. Take that, Isaac. Take it, take it, take it. Listen. Great couple chapters for Ron. Ron. Sure, one chapter, but, you know. Really kicking it. (laughs) Just a great stretch for our guy. Made his way back to his friends, back to our hearts. Escaped from the Snatchers using his wits, little muscle power, and his wizarding ability. Snatching two wands, including his own, in the process. Ooh, pretty good. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. The Chosen One's life. Dude was going to straight up drizzown. Literally, Harry was going to die. Gonna Cause s- of death for The Chosen One was going to be strangled by necklace straight in up pond. Straight up gurgling on the bottom of a four-foot pond, my dude, about to drizzown. Would Snape have saved Harry if Ron had not? I think he'd be like... Probably so, yes. We'd like to, he would have to. We'd like to like, think that he was still there watching because he needed to confirm that Harry... save <laughs> Potter? <laughs> Surely he can hold his breath for a bit longer. Idiot boy. Idiot boy. So sure. Okay, fine. Snape would have saved him, yes. But still, Ron did. That's Ron amazing. Did. Ron gets credit. He jumped into the pool, the frozen pool. He got the sword. Yes. And proved himself, of course, a true Gryffindor by getting the sword. Which is, like, listen. Big deal. That's a big deal. Destroys the Horcrux after it talks shit to him. <laughs> yes. May Inc- all my enemies suffer. Not only did he destroy the Horcrux, but he bested his own insecurities in that moment. He really did. Figures out how to use the Deluminator in a way that would allow him to find his friends. And listen, our guy survived something even scarier than the Horcrux. That's right. Hermione Granger's rage. She angry, yo. (laughs) Great look for Ron. Truly. Well, friends, the fire's lit, but the cauldron's empty. Thankfully, Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, aren't as nutty as squirrel poo. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again next time when we will be discussing chapters 20 through 22 of Deathly Hallows. Those are doozies. Big ones. Until then, remember, stuff like binge mode always sounds cooler than it really was. We've been trying to tell you that for years. 
it is mine. Stab it, Ron! Stab it! Least loved always by the mother of graves. Stab it, Ron! Stab it! Harry's been fucking a mighty for weeks. Ron, don't listen to it! She's been screaming with ecstasy. Even the magical protections can't hold back the sound of her pleasure. Ron, that's not really true. She came 15 times in a single session. That's an exaggeration, Ron. That is not true. No way. 15? Come on! 